0: Welcome to episode 17 of the Seeking the Military Suicide Solution podcast brought to you by the Military Times. I'm Dwayne France.
1: And I'm Doc Shauna Springer.
0: And we'd like to thank you for taking the time to learn more about suicide in the military-affiliated population. If you think you know somebody who might like to hear the show, share this episode with them, tag them on social media, send them an email, or just tell them about it. You can see all of the shows by going to veteranmentalhealthcom forward slash STMSS. Thanks to everybody for joining us to listen to an honest conversation about service member, veteran, and military family suicide. We'd also like you to join our Facebook group moderated by fellow combat veteran D. James. You can find the group by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash group. And speaking of our Facebook group, we welcome the opportunity to share some insights and stories from the group, including the lived experience of a military leader addressing the topic of suicide in their unit, which is what we have with our guest today. Shauna, what can you tell us about Aaron?
1: Yeah, so our next guest is Erin Escare. Erin and I got to know each other through the Bay Area television program, Veterans Voices. Erin's life has brought her into contact with all aspects of the Air Force. In her early childhood, she lived in the Netherlands, the daughter of two active duty parents in the Air Force. She remembers her father being away often, missing important events and birthdays. And then she served later as a civilian contractor in the Air Force, eventually met and married an airman. Although her original goal was to go play basketball on an international team, she ultimately enlisted in the U.S. Air Force Reserves and worked her way up the ranks to her current rank of Senior Master Sergeant, First Sergeant in the U.S. Air Force Reserves. She decided to enlist because the Air Force offered her safety, security, and a pathway to accomplishment. Erin cares about her airmen and brings high standards to her work. And she has a valuable perspective to share today as a military leader.
0: Yes, I was really excited to have her come on the show because this is very much a boots on the ground perspective. This is those of us enlisted leaders who are addressing suicide. She has a very compelling story. So we'll get into the conversation and we'll come back afterwards to pull out some of the key points. From your point of view, what have you seen has been effective in maybe addressing someone who's in a suicidal crisis down on the individual level? So
2: on the individual level, what I've seen and just in my role as a first sergeant is some people just simply want to be heard and heard without judgment because sometimes they feel a little alone about the things that they're contending with. And so if they bring it to the forefront to other people, it's almost like they get embarrassed or or they're ashamed to bring to the forefront some of the things that they're contending with, whether that be personal or, or with relationships. Just speaking on my own part during my time of being a military spouse while i was also a military member i was very ashamed to share some of the things that were going on in my home so like i would go to my military duty weekends for the reserves i'd be one way there because it was my escape and then i'd go home and i'd be in a very dark place and so everybody needed me to be the strong one (laughs) so at the utas when i'm there on my reserve weekends I'm plowing away being the strong one that everybody else leans on. Then I get home and I'm back in my weakened state. And so it was very embarrassing for me to have to come to a point where I talked about some of the things that were going on in my household. And I had to bring it to my leadership's attention because I was getting ready to deploy and there were threats being made and all kinds of stuff. So really people just want to be heard, know that they're not alone. And what's been helpful for me as a first sergeant is honestly just sitting down and talking through and allowing members to talk. Like I said, sometimes they're just embarrassed and they don't feel like they have a safe space to talk.
0: Well, and and this is sort of a barrier in that equally we want to be heard and equally we don't want to talk, right? So we have this embarrassment, whether it's this military mindset or Mm -hmm. we have to portray a certain image as a leader in the military, That we have this way that we should be, and then we have this way that we are. We want to talk about it at the same time we don't. So that's a paradox that needs to be resolved.
2: Right, right. Good God. There's a lot of humility, right, that has to come with that. And that can be very scary for people. So I'll tell you, one of the very first situations that I had to handle as a first sergeant wasn't even from one of the airmen that was assigned in my unit. It was an airman from my previous unit where I wasn't the first sergeant. But the first sergeant of that unit knew that myself and the individual that was in crisis had a really good relationship. And so now that we were both first sergeants together, she called and said, hey, this person is in crisis. Now I will tell you, it shocked the heck out of me because the person was an officer, somebody who we absolutely thought Gosh, you know, they're a little higher up in the ranking chain. So to hear that they were in crisis to the point where we were really fearful that they were going to take their life, complete shock to me. But it was humbling to know that the trust was built in me to help kind of go on this mission. And we did. We went on a serious mission. We went down about three hours away from the base where the member lived, we didn't know anything as far as where that member physically was located at the time, but based off of their schedule, we assumed the person was at work. And I tell you, when we showed up to their civilian work location, that individual was so shocked to know that we would go on this blind mission to go and pretty much rescue her. And so we ended up having a discussion with her just about what was going on. And it took a lot of humility for her as an officer to talk to two senior enlisted members who she had a lot of trust in. But, you know, we didn't see that side of her during the times we were serving with her. And so that was huge, you know, for somebody who we considered somebody kind of higher up in the chain that we figured probably has it all together, but really doesn't. Humility played such a huge part there. And that really um, helped me as I maneuvered through some more of the suicidal ideations I was dealing with some of my other airmen moving forward. It doesn't matter your rank. It doesn't matter your age or your level of experience or your level of education. This impacts everybody.
0: So this touches on something that I think Kim Ruaka and I talk about in their episode and Shawn and I have talked about is this passive resource delivery. You did not send her a message on Facebook and say, hey, reach out if you need to, right? You didn't say, call me if you need it. Like you jumped in a vehicle and you went and you did something. Would the passive resource offering have worked in this case, do you think?
2: in this case i think we were kind of past that because i think prior to me getting involved there had been those reach outs where oh if you need something because it was like the the first sergeant for this individual at the time kind of knew something was brewing just based off of conversations they were having and there were those instances where you know well you know let me know if you need anything i'm going to keep checking on you but there was just one thing that that member said to that first sergeant that triggered the first sergeant to say we are done talking here it's time to act So those things had been happening prior to, but it was just one thing that she said that said, we are now delving into a really, really critical time where she may actually carry out a plan. And we don't want that. We don't want her to feel like this is the only way that she has, hence us getting in this car blindly, not really knowing. (laughs) What we were even going to face, honestly, we're just going to be led by Faith because we didn't know if we were really going to be able to see if she was at the location that we were thinking. We were, we were prepared to drive around that entire town because it's a smaller town in California and just see if anybody had seen or anybody had known kind of her whereabouts. So, but yeah, leading up to that, there were those instances of, hey, you know, let me know if you need anything or vice versa. I'm going to keep checking in on you.
0: Right. But then there's this sense, like you said, there's, you know, if something strikes a wrong note, mm-hmm. something that, that mm-hmm. sense in the gut that just is like, you know, yep. Hey, maybe there isn't, you know, we've both been in the military a long time, maybe 15, 20 years ago, we'd get that a, a colleague uh, called it the purple feeling, right? You just got yeah. that uncomfortable <laughs> kind of, you know, bruisish kind of, and you'd ignore it. But yep. now the way things are, you really can't ignore that. That's a sign of something more.
2: Yes. And just thinking about, so I had mentioned earlier, my previous deployment, my last deployment was in 2018. And as the first sergeant to a brand new group of 220 airmen, in the first month of my deployment, I had an airman who attempted to take their life. And that resulted in a huge ordeal where we had to get the embassy involved because we didn't have a status of forces agreement with that country. And so just getting the member out of the country and to the medical care level that they needed because it was getting pretty severe and they had given my Airman about a 2% chance to live. But what I will tell you, the impact of that was, once I returned back to the deployed location, I felt like, oh my gosh, I'm almost gonna probably be overbearing when it comes to taking care of my Airman. And the reason why is because this particular Airman was the very first Airman I met when I got there, super outgoing every time I saw this airman, smile on the face, brought everybody else together. So when they made the call to me to let me know that that was the airman that was in crisis, I was was in disbelief, like there's no way this is the one that welcomed me and this is the one that welcomes everybody else and brings everybody else together. So the signs really weren't there. And so I started feeling like, oh my gosh, did I miss something? I'm a leader. They train us all the time to look for these hints and these clues and these mannerisms and these phrases and these behaviors where did I miss the boat (laughs) and so I felt like when I got back every single airman now I was like on them I wanted to know everything about them just in case I didn't want to miss any signs and I had maybe like two or more other suicidal ideation events that happened during that deployment but my god I just kept thinking we get (laughs) trained they tell us all these warning signs (laughs)
0: You know, and and that may be helpful for those who are listening to understand is the impact on a leader of that moment, right? You know, I mean, that moment when you hear of Mm. a service member or or a unit member who has beyond the ideation, but where it got to the point where they attempted and they didn't say anything. What is Mm -hmm. that like for you?
2: Well, it's heartbreaking for one because. You know just like you said in our culture in our military setting we get annual training right it's always about the awareness piece right so they're always telling us and feeding us all this information about signs and all that but me internally and with the role of me as the first sergeant, knowing that I put myself out there often to let my airmen know, please come talk to me. I'm a safe space. I'm somebody you can confide in and connect with if you're having issues. So in a sense, when those types of things happen, I almost feel like a failure. Like I've failed them. Like I haven't done my part to get to the nitty gritty of what's going on. Maybe I didn't build up enough trust or rapport with them that they felt comfortable bringing their situation to me. So I kind of take it personal in a sense that I wish I would have done more. And I've, I've heard so many people say that and we internalize it. Right. And so specifically for me, I take it personal because I know that I try to put myself out there enough to where they feel safe with me and they don't go to the route of last resort. I've got to end this for myself.
0: And this, I think, is sometimes where, like you said, there is a burden on uh, the leadership and, and the more that we sort of hide those emotions away and tunnel in, and then that can create a toxic environment within the leadership, which Absolutely. leads down dark paths, which if those dark paths are enacted upon, then confirms. I mean, this is, again, a, a cyclical thing.
2: It is. I actually had that happen. So on that same deployment, after that incident happened, probably about
0: midway through the rotation, we
2: had a changing of hands as far as our leaders. So my commander and my chief, the E9 for us was on a year rotation. So they were active duty. They were actually stationed there for the year. And so we experienced a change of hands. So I stayed the same, and then we got a new commander and a new chief. So those individuals had not been there previously for this particular incident, which was very significant for our squadron as a whole, because that impacted so many airmen on top of the leaders, it impacted my airmen too. Cause like I said, that airman was the glue that held a lot of people together. So when it came down to how I, as the first sergeant operated, and I just told you, I know that I got overbearing with making sure I was taking care of my people because I wanted to make sure like anytime I felt a sense of trouble for them, I'm like, Oh my God, are you doing okay? Are you're not wanting to harm yourself? Are you, you know, I knew that I was starting to be a little like that, but I would rather that than not be so plugged in at all. And I don't know that my commander that came on board understood that because she hadn't been there for that previous incident. And so there was a little friction between our particular particular leadership triad because I did grasp on to the airmen probably a lot more than I would have had that incident not happen. So it did cause some disruption in our cohesiveness as a triad. There were other things going on too that played a part. But I know for me specifically, I don't know that she quite understood why I was so serious about taking care of our people to the point where if they were having a crisis and they were like, I really need to get home back to the States and take care of stuff. I'm all like, yes, go. If that's what's going to make you be sane and whole. But of course, you know, my leadership's like, well, we got to consider the mission and (laughs) we can't just like send people home willy nilly, but I'm just like, send them home. That way they're in their safe space. And, you know, so I I did experience that.
1: This is Doc Springer. My new book, Warrior, is out. I don't always get a book endorsement, but when I do, it's from the world's most interesting man.
2: Hello, my friends. These are difficult times that we are all going through. So many people offer opinions on this COVID-19 situation, what to do, how to cope. So you don't know whose perspective to listen to. I would like to suggest to you a doctor, Dr. Shona Springer. She has worked for years with our warriors. She is extremely insightful and can give you all kinds of good information. I would like to recommend her book, It is called Warrior. It is important. There is information that can do good things for you. So I recommend it. Doc Springer, thank you. The book is called Warrior. Adios, amigos. Good health. Stay well. Stay isolated, but not alone.
0: Adios. That's interesting. That's something that I hadn't considered from a increasing the stress standpoint, although I did see it as a leader in that we move a lot in the military. And so I hear these stories of soldiers that come back from a deployment and they're the hero of the battle and they're they're this great thing. Now all of a sudden we know what happens after a deployment units leave and change command. So now you have a new commander and first sergeant to come in. Yep. Don't see this particular service member as the hero. They see yeah. them as somebody who drinks too much and right. creates the problems and, and not considering what that stress is. and And that's happening all over the place.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I have definitely seen that too. And so as we know, as a military culture, we've got to be prepared for change because it's never going to be the same two people in a room for a long period of time. And I think the part two that kind of made it hard for that particular situation was the inbound commander and the outbound commander were not able to have a proper handoff delay in travel and all that. The plan was for them to be there at least a, about a three to four day window of time where they could hand off things and all that. The delay of travel caused that not to happen. So then there was that break of, I can't really express to you how this impacted me face to face. We can't really have a a real discussion about it because you're in transition traveling. You are. Here's a notebook of things that happened. Talk to the first sergeant. (laughs) So that changing of hands and that transition we know happens all the time in the military. And it, you already know it takes a, t- a period of time for people to gel and mesh and understand each other's roles and understand each other's stances on things. So when you have something already like that at the forefront of you all's cohesion, that's hard. That's hard to maneuver around and gel together, even though we are taught that because we know that transition happens all the time in our leadership chains.
0: Yeah, you know, and that makes me think of my first deployment to Afghanistan, I was coming back from block leave and got a phone call from the guy who was like, hey, I'm taking over your platoon, I need to know some stuff. I'm like, what? <laughs> Give me five quick things and you I can I went, tell me. <laughs> and I went into our Sergeant Major and I was like, what is this? He was like, oh yeah, I'm putting you over here as a first sergeant, I need you to take over this company over here and that guy's already wow. been in the seat for a week and I'm like, you know, and wow. and, and this is... And, and everything happens immediately and, and very quick after a deployment, especially in the, the middle of the height of the deployment, because yeah. you knew you had 12 months, 18 months at the most before you were deploying again. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a, a critical point, especially on active duty, that maybe mental health professionals who are listening to this, they may not be aware of that. And what yeah. that kind of chaotic lack of continuity can do... Yep on individuals, but, but even on units. And that just adds more stress. And the more stressful things that occur, the more likely things can be when it gets to a suicidal crisis.
2: Absolutely. I can't echo that anymore because I see that often. And in the midst of that transition, turning point, you have all these different levels, right? You have your senior leaders, you've got your mid-level folks, and then you've got like your most junior airmen or your most junior enlisted, and everybody's trying to gel together, and everybody's trying to figure out who does what around here, aside from just doing what their actual job tells them that they need to be doing. And not everybody catches on as quickly, you know, especially when it's thrown together so quickly, right? Just like you said, you got whisked away (laughs) and thrown in. a whole nother you know company without even really having like this whole build up to it you know so we're always on the mend where we have to be flexible right and that is not always as easy for some as others and that stress level can get really overwhelming
0: and then if you add on to that as you were talking about relationship difficulties my secret to success, if I have any, is the fact that I didn't come home to an empty house, right? The right. fact that 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 yeah. my stable relationships continued, yeah. you know, add on the self-medicating, add on the, you know, each little bit, you know, and, and every pebble weighs an ounce, but if you put a bunch of pebbles on the pile, it's going to weigh a ton.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's an area too. You brought up a good point. The foundation at home and the support system at home, obviously- For many folks, they thrive so much better when they have that strong connection at home, right? But the reality is is that there's a lot of people that simply don't. And for that airman who I had that incident with in the desert, that was one of the triggers uh, that caused her choice was the fact that there was a lack of that type of family support. And what I didn't know at that point was, What actually caused her to do that action was a little bit of a broken relationship between her parents and then maybe a a gentleman that she had been dating at the time. And so I watched that too kind of play out. And so as I was telling you, moving forward in that deployment, whenever an airman would come see me and the basis of their situation has something to do with family, you know, wife is not happy at home or kids not doing well or that, I watched how that impacted Them significantly. And even me, I'm a single mom. So my son was with his father during my deployment, and even he had some struggles. So, even as a leader, I had to have that person that I could confide in and say, Hey, you know, I know my kid is struggling. I I don't necessarily want it to be a distraction from what I've got to do here. But at the same time, I'm a mom. (laughs) And I know that at home, it's just me and him. I don't necessarily have anybody else in my home that's there to support me. I've got a great community around me. you know, family and stuff that look out for me and reach out to me and check in on me. But I noticed that there's absolutely a lot more resilience for those who have that in-home or reach out and touch connection with others as opposed to those who don't and they feel so alone and so helpless.
0: You know, and this is having had many of these conversations so far, a recurring theme is people connecting to people. You've talked about it a couple of different times, being an open and honest leader who's willing to have these hard conversations, being able to have a stable support network, but that people to people connection is critical. But really, Aaron, what are some of the action steps that you're looking at it from a senior NCO in the Air Force you deal with? airmen all the time, what can someone do to take action steps towards stopping suicide in their local network, in their community?
2: So first things first for me, which is huge is tying back that connection piece. I truly believe in my heart of hearts that every single airman who has been a part of my circle or that I've watched, they have at least one person they feel like they can rely on. If that person is not you, that's okay. At least encourage them, if it's not going to be you that they trust to talk to, encourage them to speak to that one person and maybe you connect with that one person that they confide in. But connection is huge because like I said, in my experience, most of it has been people want to be heard without being judged and they want to know that they're relating to somebody else and that they do matter. And some other action steps too is not just those blanket, you know, let me know if you need anything. Be more intentional about that. Not just say it, but do it. My airmen know that if I say I'm going to check in on you, they're getting a phone call, they're getting a text, they're getting a something. It's not just going to be that blanket, I'm here for you. We've got to really step outside of that and make action. I can tell you right now in those instances where I've taken action, even if it wasn't necessarily welcomed at first, it's noticeable because it lets people know they really do care, put some action behind that. Last thing I would probably add to that as far as taking action is follow up, follow up, follow up. (laughs) It doesn't matter what the follow up looks like, but if you have an inclination or anything that makes you feel like, hey, that might be an issue down the road, check into that, follow your intuition because you may not, and it's hard to as a leader, even though I'm a first sergeant and my, my particular role is to know my people, I realize that I still have a very large squadron of people and I don't know everybody on the same level. But if something sticks out to me that seems, mm, let me check into that. I want to follow up with that. Follow up is key. And I think sometimes we get a little leery about follow up because we don't want to just assume or we don't want to be wrong, right? Oh, that might not have been anything. Let me just kind of leave that. I would rather be wrong in follow-up than to not say anything at all and then it turned out to be something at the end.
0: Yeah, I I really appreciate that. And as a leader in the military, that's critical, right? You know, we talk about those are some of the things we're supposed to do, but this is, I mean, it's not so much, you know, the mission. These are people's lives, right? And this is for the rest of someone's life and not just for the rest of this tour. So Aaron, I really appreciate you coming on the show today.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate you having me.
0: Thank you. Like I said, I really enjoyed having Erin on the show. And you can hear it in her voice how important this subject is. And it's important yes. to all of us. But I think it's really necessary for us as we're talking about seeking the military suicide solution to get some of the end user perspective.
1: Absolutely. You know, Aaron captured this feeling that other military leaders have also shared, usually in private ways. So, this took a lot of courage, and it's worth emphasizing. After a completed suicide or an attempted suicide, good leaders often struggle with a sense that because they didn't see the danger someone was in, that they somehow must have failed. Now, clinicians on the front lines of mental warfare often feel this as well, though we are not often vulnerable enough to share this. So let's go there. February 24th, 2012, I'm in the hospital, bringing my newborn daughter into the light ahead of her. A few weeks later, when I returned to my job as a psychologist at the VA, I discovered that on the same day my daughter was being born, at the same time in another part of the hospital, one of my patients was having his stomach pumped after he had tried to extinguish his life. I'm ashamed to admit this, but my first reaction was anger. My first thought was actually, How could he do this to me? As a psychologist, of course, I know that anger is a cover-up for other emotions, more vulnerable emotions, so I knew to dig a bit. And under that anger, I found a deep well of fear and sadness helplessness. And this was a familiar mix of emotions. I'd seen it before, definitely seen it on the faces and in the eyes of my patients when they came to sessions after losing a buddy. Someone who had survived the onslaught of the enemy, but had then fallen to their own hand. In these sessions, as for me, there was an initial surge of rage with no clear target. And just below the rage, there was fear and sadness and helplessness. Like me, they asked questions that had no clear answers, gut-wrenching questions like, what does it mean about me and our relationship that he didn't tell me how much pain he was in? Why didn't she trust me with this? If someone as strong as this could die by suicide, what does that mean for me? In addition to the fear, there was this pervasive sense of if I didn't see this coming, what does that mean for others I could lose? What else am I missing? So, the first point I wanted to make is that these questions and this agony are common to many people. And the theme is that those who care are the ones who will struggle with these painful feelings.
0: I agree. Thankfully, a knock on every piece of wood that I had in the last five years that is a clinician, I've not experienced, I've not lost a client to suicide. I have had interventions and I have had very timely interventions in which we saved service members lives. But this is something that for me, maybe one of the biggest horrors that I anticipate yeah. is losing a client. The same way that one would have to be losing a soldier, as Aaron did, I've experienced that. Honestly, the first well, the second suicide intervention that I ever conducted after my father was for one of my soldiers, an active intervention. And so it's this burden, but it's personal, right? These these are personal Mm -hmm. questions you're asking, not how could they do this, but how could they do this to me, right? Not what does this mean, but what does this mean For me and our relationship. So, responding to an attempt or a completed suicide is a very personal thing for individuals.
1: Yeah. And I've been on the phone with you when you've had to send people out to do a well check. And so, I think no matter how good we are, we live on the edge of a knife as people who are fighting this battle sometimes. And sometimes chance comes into this, and sometimes circumstances are just not under our control. I never lost a patient in eight years to suicide, but I could have, I could have. So I'll never sit there and say, well, I didn't lose anybody. One of my patients died six months after I left the VA. And, and that to me uh, was really difficult to kind of process. And I felt like I had lost one of mine, even though I wasn't there. So the other point relates to this. Aaron talked about this feeling of being painfully fearful to missing the sign in some other airman after an attempted or completed suicide. And this is also something that people who care will experience. So clinicians tell me that for a while, they don't trust their clinical instincts and loved ones tell me that they feel this heightened hypervigilance about other loved ones for a long period of time after a traumatic loss or a near loss. So to this, I would say, we teach people to recognize the signs of suicide. And we hold the assumption That the signs are probably detectable. What I think we forget sometimes is that warriors are often professionally good at concealing their pain. It's good to know the signs but it's also not realistic to put pressure on leaders and healers to always be reading between the lines. We must also overcome the barrier of stigma and shame and set a culture where people can feel safe to say I'm not okay. And here, I know Erin Isker really well. She's a safe person and deeply trusted by her airmen. So the fact that some might not come forward is not a failure of her leadership. And feeling responsible for things that we can't control only causes pain that's often unproductive. If people turn this pain into guilt or a sense that they should have done something else, then this can even put them at heightened risk of suicide themselves or other mental health outcomes that we'd rather avoid. Knowing the signs then is not sufficient. Responsibility also lies with us if we are suffering to act on that working trust and step across the line of fear to say that we're not okay.
0: You know, that is a great point. And I don't know that I had considered that is that we service members, and this is my own personal experience, are very adaptable to showing what we want to show. Whether it's, you know, choke it down meathead if we're in the middle of a, you know, difficult firefight or something like that. But I'm even thinking of, I reacted differently in front of my battalion commander than I did my first sergeant as we were on the same rank. And I know my soldiers reacted differently to me than they did with themselves. Or even this idea of, you know, people presenting themselves externally. We don't talk in public, hopefully, the way we do talk in the squad bay, right? Right. And so service members are very adaptable and almost have intuitive emotional intelligence in reading other people because we have to do that right we have to be aware we have to observe does is the boss in a bad mood how do i have to react in a different way and so we do have the ability to put up a mask to hide vulnerability in a yes. very easy way
1: absolutely you are trained and then constantly shaped to do that whereas i think It's not the same. I've worked in both populations. You know, I have the benefit of 10 years working with civilians and 10 years working with the military population. And so I think some of the assumptions of the way that we emphasize suicide prevention training is that people will make cries for help and show that they're not okay and that the signs are detectable. And in my experience, working with warfighters, they are motivated to conceal and compartmentalize their pain and they're professionally good at it.
0: We're taught to do that from basic training is stand up straight, eyes straight ahead. You know, this is a position of attention and instill discipline on your body and your face so that the drill sergeants don't come shark attack you.
1: That's right. And so when we make this assumption in the military, the signs will be detectable and we put all the emphasis on recognizing the signs without pushing the other half of the equation, which is, No, you need to set a a culture and expectation that people will come forward and and say that they're not okay. Because if they don't, then leaders are going to be left feeling responsible and clinicians are going to be left feeling responsible. And we're going to lose some of our best people in terms of whether they continue in that profession or whether they have their own negative mental health outcomes from feeling like they failed. And I don't think that's fair.
0: Yes, you're absolutely right. And again, that goes on to the not only do we take these things personally, like it's a personal affront to us, we also take them with personal responsibility. And that's what your leaders are saying, because I didn't observe these signs and my soldiers, then somehow I failed to enact my responsibility and that's what we're trained to do and and required to do. And and I think that's a very important conversation. I was glad to be able to have Aaron on the show to talk about it. And I really appreciate everybody taking the time to listen. Make sure you check out the show notes at federalmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS 17, where you can get the links to the things we talked about in this episode, as well as on militarytimes.com. As a reminder, you can ask us questions or let us know what you thought about the show by going to our Facebook group, moderated by the outstanding Dee James, by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash group.
1: Just a reminder that the guests and reflections on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be considered professional advice. While Dwayne and I are mental health professionals, we're not your mental health professionals. We always recommend that you discuss these things with a licensed clinician.
0: And always remember, you can connect with the Veteran Crisis Line by calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1, chat online with them at VeteranCrisisLine.net or texting 838255. Thanks again for joining us to talk about seeking the military suicide solution, and make sure to follow Military Times on social media to keep up with the latest shows. Join us next time for another great episode, and until then, remember, you're not alone, ever.